Uh, hello, everybody. Today is... I never really know the day, do I? Oh, it's Monday, April 20th, 420. That means you should smoke marijuana, apparently. I'm not telling you to do that. I could, that's just what the day means. This is the Monday Morning Analyst. Uh, my name is Luke Thomas, Senior Editor over at MMAFighting.com. Thank you for joining me. Uh, lots happened over in the weekend uh, in the world of combat sports, but I'm really just going to focus on the MMA stuff. I do the boxing stuff, and no one really seems to... Uh, what's the word? Care? <laughs> so I'm going to largely stick with what happened in the world of mixed martial arts. But what I'll do is, in the post that goes up on MMAfighting.com, um, I'll include a bunch of videos and stuff and news results from around the week, or weekend, I should say, in combat sports. So you know how this works, 30 minutes or less, usually a little bit more. I try to get everything uh, packed in, in terms of all the technical action that happened. Uh, we'll talk about UFC on Fox 15 for this event. Ready? Here we go. Okay, timer's on. Um, so as this usually goes, as you well know, we do like the um, the overview and then the recap of the action and then uh, what's ahead. So with this one, let's sort of go with the overview here. Number one, it was really nice to see not a lot of extended leaning against the cage. I mean, there was some of this early going on this card, um, uh, especially in the first fight between Dempsey and Gordon. But largely you can see that when there's a step up in competition, yes, the fence is used, but things happen one way or the other. Either the the defense is so strong that it stops any offense and separation is created, or there's a takedown or something to the uh, that affects some kind of submission attempt or attack in the clinch. Or you, you get the idea, like change is made, and so there was not a lot of that. Uh, thank God, or I should say, there wasn't a lot of the uh, you know, just 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 eating up the clock with leaning on the cage, which we talked about last week on this podcast. I was happy to see that go away. But I think the bigger one was really, I mean, it's impossible to ignore just the changing of the guard, right? Um, you had Aljamain Sterling beating Takeya Mizugaki. You had, I don't know if this is the changing of the guard exactly, but certainly the establishment of a further contender in Ovin St. Prude defeating Patrick Cummins. But Getting back to the original theme, Benil Dariush defeating Jim Miller, Paige Van Zandt defeating Felice Herrig, Max Holloway defeating Cub Swanson, and then of course in the end, Luke Rockhold beating Leota Machida. I think the question for me though is, um, how much of this is due to just the natural aging process? How much of this is due to the aging process plus individual wear and tear on some of these athletes? How much of this is that plus the technical evolution of um, the new generation. Because what it seems like to me was when the current generation that's being feasted on, the Millers, the Herrigs, the Swansons, they were a technical leap up from the generation prior to them. Sort of an unequivocal step up. And when you watch someone like Max Holloway, you say, well, this is clearly another step. But I think my takeaway from that was... Yes, the new generation is a step up from the previous generation, there's no doubt about it, but the jump up each new generation is getting smaller and smaller. Um, we're reaching a point where there's like, uh, we're not there yet by any stretch, but we are approximating a point of peak evolution, I feel like. Um, there, it wasn't like the guys who won, they were clearly better, or the ladies in this case, but it was not as if it was... You know, it just didn't represent some new paradigm in fighting. It just represented the dawn of a new um, class of fighters 
represented largely generationally, not not generationally as a new technical jump up. Uh, and I think that should be noted. I really do. I, I, I'm not sure that the guys who lost in their prime, they may still have lost. In fact, I think someone like, you know, um, Cub Swanson is probably still in his prime to some extent, although I, I really wonder a little bit about that too. But you get the idea. I think that the guys who won, they probably would have won anyway. So I think there is things to be said for having a technical step up. But in the cage of Paige Van Zandt, I mean, she's not there technically at all uh, yet anyway. Uh, Luke Rockhold might be, but... Um, you know, a prime Lyoto Machida, you know, not 36 years old. I wonder if that though that bout would have been a little bit different, you know. I truly do. Uh, not saying that Rockhold still wouldn't have won. I, you know, based on what happened, probably would have. But I, I think you understand what I'm driving at. So I just think it's important to sort of circle back and say, wow, dawn of a new era for sure, right? But when you see successive new dawns like this, this one kind of took me by surprise just because I didn't see the same level of you know, Delta. I didn't see the, the same level of change. I do see change. I do see progress, but maybe not the same quantum step up we had taken previously. All right, with that said, UFC on Fox 15. Let's go over some of the results and some of the technical action. If you're like me and you love jujitsu, boy, there was plenty of it. This took place at the Prudential Center in Newark, New Jersey. Obviously, the uh, preliminary card and main card aired on Fox. There was a portion of the preliminary card that aired on Fight Pass. We'll do that last, as we are now want to do. Uh, real quickly, the bonuses, $50,000 each, went to Fight of the Night was Gian Vellante versus Corey Anderson, which is funny because I don't see any need to talk about it. Uh, performance of the Night went to Luke Rockhold and then Max Holloway. Um, and the gate was announced at 1.2 mil, which means the ticket prices were pretty relaxed. Attendance, 13306 so not bad. But if you're only getting a 1.2 mil out of 13,000, you know, uh, that's, those are good numbers, of course, but this will tell you what time it is. All right, so let's start from the beginning. Uh, uh, main event, Luke Rockhold defeated Leota Machida at 231 of the second round via rear naked choke. Yeah, this was, this was, this was shocking. It was not shocking. Someone asked me if it was shocking tactically, and I didn't think it was shocking tactically. I thought it was shocking in terms of how lopsided it was. Luke Rockhold absolutely handled Leota Machida. There's just really no other way to say it. There was a moment early in the first round where he was getting kind of tuned up um, at angle. Machida would pop a right, then cut an angle at about 45 to upwards of 90 degrees, and then pop him with the opposite side hand. And so that was landing as Rockhold was overcommitting to his right. So Leota would duck out of the way, land one, turn on a corner as Rockhold was turning, and then pop him at the same time. Um, and that was great, but that only happened like once or twice. After that, he appeared to be slipping as he tried to um, laterally move uh, over Rockhold's foot. And from there, man, it was all she wrote. Rockhold was just completely dominant on top. You know, it was amazing to me how he utterly shut down any ability of Machida to scramble. You know, when I went back and watched the fight, one of the things I was sort of struck by was like, Machida does not scramble really hard. You know, he might scramble a bit in the clinch, he might scramble in and out of range for striking, but off of his back or from turtle, there's not a ton of effort that's made. You know, I'm not, it's not that he even tried to scramble and couldn't get away, it's just he made a little bit of a attempt, but Rock and I understand Rockhold is just you know this giant mass of um, excellent grappler on top of you. But I, I really sort of want to point that out. You go back and watch, not not a lot of hustle there for one reason or the other. And really, you have to give a lot of credit to Rockhold. Just a, a a totally complete game from the back. 
Um, and by that I mean was happy to work from turtle without getting knee barred. Um, good use of wrist control while while throwing strikes. Good timing about when to transition side to side. Good timing about when to sink a hook and when not to. Good timing about um, how to move with the hooks in. Good, great balance on top to flatten Machida and then land an elbow while his hand was posted. You know, Rockhold is really long, so he can post a hand on the mat from back control and s- still be able to throw the other arm with a lot of open spacing. So remember, for example, that when he had the mounted guillotine on Bisping, he arched his back, he had the mounted guillotine with one arm, and was like, oh, you got a one-arm guillotine. Well, he did, but... The other hand was posted on the mat to keep that posture in that super tight, horrible, awful position. Right? That's what had happened. And so, um, you can see here, he uh, when he had full back control in the first round, he had his right hand planted on the mat, and there was still a ton of space. Machida tucking his chin, doing everything he's supposed to do, and just could not stop this like wonderfully placed elbow to the side of his head. He was in bad bad shape. Um, uh, one thing I want to sort of call out in the first round, he had standing seatbelt control. Now, he didn't have his back, but he just had the grip. So one hand over the neck and that hand, uh, so, 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 let me go back, one hand over the neck, the other hand underneath the opposite side armpit. The hand that goes over the neck is being cupped by the hand that goes under the armpit, right? He does what Cormier did to Henderson, which is he keeps that seatbelt grip as, as Leota bends over and then angles 90 degrees and uses that to pull him to the mat where he immediately takes his back. That is hard to do. You have to have the right kind of body and the right kind of timing. And, and I think, you know, not like you have to be He-Man, but you have to have really good strength too. A lot there. Then in the end, there wasn't much to the second round. He seemed to slip again. Uh, uh, you know, um, Machida did a good job. Oh, one thing I want uh you know, you know what? I'll contrast that on the Felice Herrick Pans, uh, Paige Van Zant fight. But um, you know, Machida was able to recapture full guard and always had a knee inside and was you know, f- you know, never let too much get past knee shield. But in the second round, he was just so banged up there was not much he could do. Um, Rockhold taking the back, sticking the choke, and and he just looked appeared ready to go. Um, incredible performance by Luke Rockhold. I had argued that it's it's not too dissimilar or if not better than how John Jones beat Machida, because John Jones essentially lost to Machida in that first round, depending, I mean, depending on your perspective, obviously, and then, you know, came out and certainly put him away in the second, but, um, you know, this was dominant in the first round, such that there almost was stopped there. Uh, granted, different era, different weight class, different fight, not era so much, but different year anyway. So then we moved to the co-main event. This was fairly, you know, straightforward. Um, Jacare Souza defeating Chris Camozzi via verbal submission at 233 of the first round. Not much to say about this one, y'all. Pretty simple double leg right into Camozzi's guard. You know, didn't even try to pass. A lot of times guys will do a double and then they'll try and cut the corner. Jacare didn't even seem to care, you know. Was able to pass fairly easily. You saw Camozzi put his shin in the bicep on in the same side, grab the wrist of um, Jacare. Looked to me like he was setting up a triangle or an omoplata of some kind. So what does Jacare do? Jacare moves to the opposite side and then literally cage walks. All he has to do is just get the knee behind his own armpit, cage walks, and then comes around the top, and then all of a sudden that same side shin and uh, shin on the bicep, hand, wrist control on that on Jacare's left arm 
it meant nothing in the end. Uh, now, it should be noted, which people don't seem to be talking about, Jacare had his toes clenched inside the cage, which he used to help suspend himself. You are not allowed to do that. You can you can press against it, so you can do more than touch it. Uh, touch it. You can actually press it, but you can't clench inside. Just as your fingers can't clench inside, you know your toes can't clench on it either. He kind of got away with one there, but what are you gonna do? Uh, passes. Uh, eventually, you know you can see Kamozi try and frame so that he doesn't get the space between his hip and his own armpit completely occupied. Um, Jacare moves back down to goes to neon belly. And this was like, this was so awesome. So what happens? So if someone is on top of you and you're trying to stand up, uh, an MMA, what you see commonly is they'll put, let's say I'm trying to stand up and I'm leaning to my left. I'm sort of on my left hip. I might put my left elbow or left hand on the ground. And this all depends on a variety of circumstances, but you get the idea. And let's say you're in half guard or they're in your half guard. So you're on your left hip. You gotta put your elbow in the ground, your left elbow, because you want to. You don't want to be flat on your shoulders, or you know, you want to be. You want to be upright because you need to be able to scramble, get your hips away, or, or move them one way or another. And to suspend them as such, you gotta have weight planted behind you. So let's say you get your elbow, your hand planted. You're gonna use your other hand. In this case, that would be your right hand to underhook them. And there's a variety of things you can do. You can use the underhook to put your same side leg that you're underhooking. Uh, on top of theirs and then sweep them you can use it to get your hips out you can do all kinds of different things from there but that's what you got to do okay so Jacare is passing in that exact same way so imagine the, the scenario i just described you're chris camozzi now so camozzi is getting his left side pass to on your you imagine you're on your back someone's passing to your left side in this case it's Jacare. so what are you going to do you're going to put your hand as an underhook right and you're going to try and stand. Okay, Jacare reads this the whole time. The whole time he knows it's coming. In fact, if you go back and watch the gift, you can see him uh, almost uh, eagerly slide in position before the uh, underhook from Kamozi even comes. The underhook from Kamozi comes. Jacare wizards it. Okay. Um, and then just kind of backsteps. He just backsteps behind him. Right? Because what's Kamozi doing? Kamozi is going from his side to all fours. He's going from his side to turtle. Um, all Jacare does is uh, backstep. I'm looking at it right here. Yeah. So Jacare comes up to the side and just essentially just hops over his um, Kamozi's back as like a um, instead of just trying, you know, instead of just trying to flatten him out, just goes the opposite direction. In other words, Kamozi comes up and goes from one side to the other well Jacare just decides to move in the very opposite direction at the same time and therefore locks up his arm right so again you're going to roll up one side as you roll up you're essentially giving Jacare what he wants he needs you to move into that position and he's meeting you there he's meeting you there he just does a, a big back step there's a, been a video floating around if you follow BJJ at all of Jean-Jacques Machado showing this with a gi um it's the same it's the exact same move it's it, again Gumozi is trying to come up uh, to his right, and as he does, Jacare moves across his back to his left, locking up the arm. Now, the arm he locked up was supposed to be the kind where, remember I told you that after Kamozi underhooks, Jacare whizzers? So the reason why he's whizzering is because after he whizzers and then jumps across Kamozi's back, now he's got the arm tucked in behind him. Remember that arm bar that Rousey had on Zingano? Kind of like that. The same kind of uh, the knee bar that Shogun had on Kevin Randleman tucked behind you he loses it a bit in the scramble 
um, partly because of the wiggling free of Kamozi, but captured it back. In fact, when he re-sort of captures the arm um, and sits back, he doesn't have to sit even to a side to break the grip. He just kind of sits right back on it. So, But that was the crazy part. You see Kamozi come up from one side to his right to get to Turtle. As he does, Jacare jumps over his back to his left, grabbing, of course, his right arm in this particular... Yes, his right arm in this particular case. Um, it's the one he uses to underhook. Wizards jumps over the back. Great. Great job by Jacques Array. Uh Okay, moving on. Max Holloway. What do you say about Max Holloway defeating Cub Swanson at 358 of round three? By the way, uh, Kamozi uh, tapped at 233 of round one. Max Holloway, I mean, I don't want to spend too much time on this because you could do it forever, but, I mean, what do you say? He did everything. He did everything amazing. Uh... I mean, just the volume of different strikes, the 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 the, the diversity of them, um, the range of them. By the way, I can't wait to see how we measure how much a guy moves, right? Because when I, when I went back and watched, it was like crazy how much uh, Max Holloway was just on his horse the whole time. Not running, of course, but I just mean just being so active with his movement. A couple things I noticed. Number one. If Holloway tagged Swanson with something and it didn't immediately hurt him but clearly landed, he would switch switch sides. So let's say he doubled up on a jab, 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 and then came across with a cross, bang, and the cross landed, but it didn't stumble him or rock him or anything like that. He would switch sides and then go back to a completely different arsenal. And then he would land something enough with authority and then go back to the other side. So every time he kind of landed a nice shot that got him hurt, before Cub could counter, before Cub could get a beat on him, he was back to doing something different. Thought that was kind of amazing. I guess, too, I sort of already alluded to it. The amount of just movement back and forth, You're not just switching sides exactly, but around the octagon, because it was, he kind of, for the most part, let Swanson stalk him, but he never exactly um, allowed him to really. Um, you know, fir- firmly push him around. It was only one really good takedown attempt. Now, of course, Swanson landed a couple decent shots himself. He landed a check hook early, I think, a check left hook early. He landed a couple of good body kicks, um, but nothing really of any any kind of substance that made Holloway change what he was doing. I think that was the most impactful thing for me to notice. Um, again, the diversity of things for everything he threw. You know, from high kicks, it wasn't a lot of leg kicking exactly, but certainly from the waist up. Um, never tripled up on a shot. You know, never went back to the same thing as in one, two, three. He might go one, two, switch sides and pacing, but never, never, you know, I'm going to throw a left, move, throw a left, move, and then throw a left. It was much more varied than that. It was always in multiples, or I should say it was always in twos and then a change, or a one and a change. But it was never a one, two, and a three and then a change. He never really let it go that far. So pretty impressive there by Max Holloway. The finish came kind of interesting. Hurt him with the body shot. Um, and then this was in the third round, and then try to lock up a standing high elbow guillotine. Swanson tries to stuff it by rolling to his back, but it's too late. Um, before he can roll back down to his back, in other words, before because it's not just rolling to your back. You have to like if you go back and watch Velasquez and Dos Santos. It's not just that Cain Velasquez goes to his back; it's that he goes to his back before Dos Santos can change the angle on him. Right, because it's a different angle from just standing and to then jumping to mount, unless someone just lets you do it uncontested. Right, you have to spin out the bottom, um, and it's like you're not just flying your back either. Sometimes you have to keep going through the roll to get it all the way out. But here's what I'm trying to point out: Swanson recognizes he's in deep S, so 
he knows to roll. But Holloway anticipates it. And before Swanson can roll, Holloway hooks his left leg to the, I guess, the right leg of Swanson. So that when Swanson rolls, he just pulls Holloway into mount. <laughs> Genius, right? I mean, this is what I'm talking about. Like, it's not just that he's perfected his striking or he has a better sense of range, but he just has, you know, I'll give him the technical leap up argument here, but, you know, maybe not for everyone else, but certainly for him, you know, like, um, he's just so smart. It's like so reactive. The, the decision making is so, it's so great uh, with Max Holloway. Anyway, he, he, he hooks it. So when Holloway tries to roll, he just brings Holloway right along with him. I mean, brilliant move by Max Holloway. That is some serious high-level stuff. And from there, if you go back and watch, one of uh, Swanson's arms is out. The other one, I think it's his right hand, uh, is desperately trying to pull on the gripping of Max Holloway. And Max Holloway doesn't sink his hips until he has it firmed up. Once he has it firmed up, then he drives his hips in, leans back, two hands on it, and as you see, one hand, that hand from uh, Swanson that was on slips off. He just can't seem to have anything to do with it anymore. It's not quitting. It just your space gets forced out. Um, and then once that hand comes out, he taps. That's it. Uh, amazing performance from Max Holloway. Truly, truly brilliant. I had said before. I, I don't know who's. I think it was on. Um, I think it was on. Maybe uh, not be down after the bell, but one of the Sherdog sure preview shows that we may go back and look at Conor McGregor's resume. And certainly, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with Jose Aldo, but we may go back and look and say, you know, who was the best guy outside of Jose Aldo that he ever fought? Max Holloway. We we may end up going back and saying that. And after the performance he put on against Swanson, I feel ever more comfortable in saying that. Paige Van Zandt defeated Felice Herrick by unanimous decision: thirty twenty six, twenty nine twenty seven. Uh, and 30-26. I had that fight 29-27 as well, meaning I gave the first round to Herrig and then the last two to Van Zant. the third being uh, a 10-8. So that's how I scored it. I went back and watched it today because there were some people pushing back saying first round is a clear 10-9 for Van Zant. I mean, maybe. I, I, I don't really have much of an issue with it. A couple of things. One, whenever you're live blogging, your judging is always very conditional because you're having to, you know... Even if I don't have to look, like you can look uh, at the TV and still type on the keyboard, but to make sure everything's right, you do have to look down eventually. Like the back end on these systems require a, a fair number of T's to be crossed and I's to be dotted outside of simply just writing text. So um, I always tell you that my judging when live blogging is very, very conditional. But you know, I went back and watched it today. I I still can see a case for Harrigan in round one. Didn't matter in the end though. Um, here's what a couple things I noticed. Obviously, Van Zant going for the head and arm toss, getting her back taken. I see this all the time in MMA, all the time, man. And it's all from people who spaz too. They hit, they you know Rousey being the exception, obviously. They hit a head and arm trying or head and arm throw, and then they get their back taken. Why? Because if I throw you and here you are on the bottom, I've got let's say your right arm and I've got your head cupped. Your left arm is free and there's no underhook there. I haven't underhook underhooked your left arm. You can just come out the back. Um, now, good judo people will be able to put pressure on you, so that's hard to kind of move. Um, they can really immobilize you. But if you haven't really mastered that position, you're going to get your back taken regularly, which is, of course, what happened there. Um, and Herrick took the back. Herrick did a good job of maintaining um, you know, wrist control underneath the armpit so to come back on top when she was rolling away from mount. I thought that was pretty good. 
But how did Herrick wind up losing? Well, number one, you know, Paige Van Zant technically has a long way to go. I, I don't have any hesitation saying that. But, you know, when I mentioned this on Twitter, what she lacks in, you know, technical refinement, she certainly makes up for in um, in ferocity. And, dude, ferocity in MMA matters. You know, both the unbridled and the, and the more refined kind. They both – this is a game that is where – I have to say, offense is just much more effective than defense, which is not to say defense doesn't matter, but you know, this is not boxing where you have to have a huge quotient of both, or in some cases like Mayweather, where you can have better defense than you do offense, um, and you can be you know one of the best fighters, if not the best fighter of your generation. MMA is not quite like that, um, so that's partly why she had some success. But that's not exactly what I wanted to point to. Lots of different things you could point to in this fight, but what I noticed was. Herrig underneath had a lot of things going for her. Um, but I wonder what kind of looks she's getting in training that made her make some of the decisions that she did, or if it was just, you know, that was the only ability she had. Here's what I mean. She spent a lot of time, in, especially in the third round, in the 50-50 guard. Um, and she spent time, um, you know, where... Van Zant would have like a modified knee on belly. Now she would be she, what Herrig was always able to do to her to her benefit was keep a knee in between so that she couldn't Van Zant couldn't pass to mount. Van Zant will have trouble passing to the side. Herrig actually did a really good job of that. But the problem is you have to complement it with something else. Go back to the first round of Rockhold versus Machida. Same kind of thing. You see Machida keeping one knee in between, either from like a knee shield or to prevent the knee slice pass, something there. But he then would grab up, hold behind Rockhold's head, and throw elbows, like a dirty boxing style. And then when that got stuffed, he would then use that to scramble to a full guard or to turtle. He never kind of stayed in between if he could have, if he could avoid it. Now again, all this is easier said than done. Herrick wasn't quite doing that. Herrick was getting a knee in between, okay, that's great, and then kind of trying a wrist control thing here, or blocking punches here or there, or just constantly reacting to the shifting hips of Van Zant, but never really controlling the posture. So the knee in is great. You need that. I mean, if, you're, if the knee's in the way, they can't progress. Okay, good, but it's just one component of the things that you need. Also with 50 50. That's fine if you want to use 50-50, especially if you want to use 50-50 to keep them off balance. In other words, you're both sitting. It's great to use 50-50 if you want to go for toe holds or heel hooks. 50-50 is great if you want to come up on top. 50-50 is not so great if, you don't, if you're using it just to hold them in place and then they are coming up on top, which is exactly what happened. Bad news, man. That is bad news. Um, and so that constantly happened to Herrick. 50-50 is great if you're both seated or you're on top. But if, they're, if you're underneath and you're not going for heel hooks or knee bars, you need to get out of there quick. Um, and so she just got pounded on badly in that third round. Moving to the preliminary card, Benil Dariush defeated Jim Miller, unanimous decision, 29-28, across the board. A couple things to note from this. There was one sequence where uh, Dariush was seeking a takedown against the cage. Uh, Jim Miller locks up a Kimura, goes for a sacrifice throw, and then moves to mount with it. Um, that would have finished most guys, I feel like the reason why Dariush was able to get out of it was, one, if you go back and watch, the minute he gets put into mount, Dariush is immediately moving his wrist, which means he's moving his arm underneath, which means, here's what happens. If you have someone's arm extended away from them and you're in mount, um, I actually have t complete trouble with this nogi. Not everyone does. I can't do it very well nogi. With the gi, I have a lot more success. If your body isn't completely occupying that space, they're going to be able to move their arm. You have to have the arm wrapped, and your body has to be flattening it. 
even before there's any submission. And if you haven't done that properly, you're not going to get it. So Miller, you can see, tries it. You can see he recognizes he doesn't have it. And then uh, Dariush begins to try and go to Turtle. Miller, recognizing it, tries to go, because he, he still has the arm, not isolated, but controlled, right? Big difference. And then rolls to go to, um, what you call it, uh, Triangle. And almost gets it, but Dariush coming up had a knee in between and was able to scoot his head out and then was able to sort of pass to the side. Not a lot to say beyond that, except um, uh, I think it was also a guillotine attempt that Miller had, but just Dariush was able to pass with a, basically a, a, a knee slice or like an instep pass um, and then go to mount and then back control. What I would have liked to have seen from Dariush, in addition to the, um, to the, to the, you know, he had great passing, great back control. Just didn't seem to fit in enough striking to make the rest of the striking, or rather the submission attempts, really work. You know, you saw with Luke Rockhold, I mean, he had Machida hurt bad before he even tried it. I think that's what you really have to do in modern MMA. Uh, Ovid St. Prue defeated Patrick Cummins via KO at 454 of the first round. Amazing. I mean, listen, I picked against St. Prue. Everyone went on to say, oh, well, look what you said in MMAB. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, it's fine. But, you know, after the Bader fight, I wasn't really sure exactly what was going to happen for St. Prue. I thought Cummins would have a better chance than he did. And, by the way, it looked like as the round wore on, one of the things I've noticed with OSP is that he gets really off balance when he strikes. That was still a problem here. But the scrambling was great. He was able to get his hips and shoulders away when he got dropped from the behind. Um, he was able, once he landed, he, did, he immediately moved. I think that's a key. Um, fought the hands really well. Never was able to, uh, to get a, keep a clean grip on him. Uh, and then what I really liked was when Cummins was coming in to close the distance, St. Prue had his left arm, I think, maybe his right arm, but he had one arm against the collarbone of Cummins to keep him at distance and used that to spend just enough time and space to then throw the uppercut. So kind of held him out there and then bombed on him, and that's all she wrote. That was that was a nice little detail using the using his forearm against the collarbone and then crushing him from there. Uh, Gian Vellante defeated Corey Anderson at 418 of round number three. Aljamain Sterling defeated Takeya Mizugaki uh, via uh, arm triangle from underneath. Um, it looked like, by the way, Takeya Mizugaki had good defense against the cage, but not if he was locked up before the cage and then was forced to back up into it on one leg. He seemed to lose his balance when he did that. But Aljamain Sterling, folks were giving me some pushback on this one a little bit, saying that you know you don't need to squeeze harder if your technique is tighter. Well, your technique on this one is hard to do right, and a lot of times because that, that doesn't come, you have to squeeze harder. Moreover, um, if you even if you do this right, I do still believe this one requires a little bit of an extra twist. So here's how this is done. You know, when you have a normal um, head and arm triangle, a lot of times it requires you cutting an angle or bringing your chest on top of the outside of their, their tricep or shoulder to really finish it. Those aren't available to you. So what the key is here is, there goes the timer, let me finish this. The key is here, you have to not just yank them to you. You want to lock up your grip and then hang from them. Right? In other words, so they're carrying your weight. But you're not just hanging at distance. You're hanging in super tight. You're right on top of them, but you're hanging from them at the same time. It's that, that, that can be a difficult little trick to pull off. In any event, and then you angle off to the side like he did. I mean, he had that thing so deep he was able to grab his own bicep. That is nuts. That is super nuts. Uh, by the way, if you recall the head and arm triangle that Holloway tried on Swanson, you go back and look, Holloway is only able to grab his forearm. He wasn't able to get all the way to the bicep. That means that it wasn't all the way through. Uh, but that's the key there. The, the, the key from that upside-down head and arm triangles, you can't just squeeze and bring them to you. You want to lock up the grip as tightly and thoroughly as possible, scoot your hips out, and then you want to 
as you squeeze a little bit, you want to hang from them. And all these things require a little bit of delicate balancing. Uh, Tim Memes, Tim Memes, Tim Means also defeated George Sullivan via arm triangle choke at 341 of round three. Um, this one was from leg drag. And the way you get out of leg drag is you actually have to post your forearm in their throat and collarbone to separate out. If you try and go over like he did, where you know I have uh, I have my arm like I'm trying to go for a Kimura, you're not gonna be able to get it because of the angling, and you're just gonna get what happened to him, which is head and arm triangled. Because all he has to do is just whip you over to the side, which he did, and it was almost immediate from there. Uh, Diego Brandao defeated Jimmy Hedis via TKO, Doctor Stoppage uh, as a split ear after the first round. And then, of course, Chris Dempsey defeated Eddie Gordon via split decision, 29-28, 28-29, and then 29-28. I scored it the other way around, but this fight was pretty dreadful. Um, okay, fighter of the card, I'm going to give to Luke Rockhold with an honorable mention to Max Holloway. Um, and let's see, what's coming up next? Invicta is on Friday. Kacha Konkanpa, I think that's her name. Uh, is going to defend her title after defeating Stephanie Egging, and then, of course, UFC 186 on Saturday. Not the best card, but there'll be enough action to talk about on this podcast. Um, guys, I'm going to have all of Glory 20's fights embedded in the post on MMA Fighting. Glory put them up for free on YouTube. We'll have that. We will also have, let's see, um, all the boxing results from the weekend as well, and, of course, some more news and notes. So thank you for joining me. Get at me on uh, Facebook.com slash Sports. I'm at Luke.Thomas at SBNation.com. And, of course, last but not least, you can email me at luke.thomas at Ladies and gents, until next time, enjoy the fights.